Um, few announcements. One is that we have Huddle Up tonight if you're, if you're with us. Uh, regularly, hopefully, you're participating in a huddle. In Huddle Ups, we all come together and do some training. We're going to continue to talk about, about mission and how that relates to a, a recent survey we did and that kind of thing. Um, next week, that, that's tonight at 6. Dinner will be provided. Sorry, I'm not good at announcements, apparently. Uh, <laughs> next week, we have a combined service with the chili cook-off. We encourage you to, uh, to bring a, uh, uh, a chili to uh, participate in that. And then next Tuesday, we have the Halloween party for, for the community. Um, advertisements will go into the schools for that this week. Uh, it's a good way for us to connect with our neighbors, to meet them, uh, communicate with them, love on them, that sort of thing. It's a really good introduction. So we still need uh, candy for that. We need workers for that. There's a sign-up sheet uh, in, in the back. We encourage you to be a, a part of that if uh, you have uh, nothing else going on with your family, especially this is a good way that we can do some ministry together. So uh, I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we pray to begin our service. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer, and then I'll, I'll close in prayer. So, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Uh, Jesus, we ask that you would bless this time, that you would guide this time, that you would be honored in this time, that your name would be lifted up in this time, uh, that all of that would happen so that you would be gloriously praised in this time. You're a great God. We love you so much in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, we are in week three of what is a six-week series on Crosswinds Family Values. There will be a, a week off next week from that. There will be a standalone uh, message next week, and then we will come back to our, to our family values. But we're in week three. Uh, you remember the first week was we are gospel-centered. The second week was we, are, we function like a family or we do church like a family. And this week... Uh, this week, our value is diversity. Uh, diversity has been a value for Crosswinds from since the beginning. Uh, Crosswinds was planted in the year 2000, but from the beginning, we've had a theme verse, and our theme verse came from Revelation 5.9, uh, and it was this. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you, have, you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe, language, and people and nation. You made them into a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on earth. That's been our, our theme verse since the beginning. Uh, when, when God called me to plant uh, here in, in Godwin Heights, he also equipped me to plant in Godwin Heights. So I'm a, I'm a Godwin Heights kid. I've lived most of my life in this neighborhood. In fact, all of it except for six years. And one of the things I knew uh, from a very, very young time is that the neighborhood was very diverse. At the time, and this is years ago, there were something like 48 different languages being spoken in the, in the high school. Um, it was the, the most diverse school outside of Grand Rapids public schools uh, when I was growing up. Those things, t uh, those things are still true all these years later, only they've, they've probably grown and expanded. And so 
as a child of this neighborhood called to be a missionary to this neighborhood, one of the things I realized is that if there were churches in, in this community, people came into them to go to church. And if, there, if people went from this neighborhood went to church, by and large, they drove outside of the neighborhood. And so that was one of the motivating factors for why we would plant a church here in, in Crosswinds or in Goblin Heights, because what I realized was that there was a breathe-in, breathe-out culture. Very few of the people who actually lived here attended a church. And more than that, uh, with there were churches in the community, those churches did not accurately reflect the community as they should. They tended to be um, churches that were completely Caucasian and, and made up of people from outside the neighborhood. And so... So part of our calling from the beginning was to, was to look at this picture from Revelation chapter 5 and see where it said that the, the reward of the Lamb, God's reward for, for purchasing people, uh, was that he got every nation, language, and tongue. There's this picture of diversity. It's a picture of people from all over uh, all over the planet from different tribes, different skin colors, different languages, and it's a picture of them all before the throne of God worshiping. And what we said from the beginning, the idea that, that we had and one of, the, one of the core values we're planted under was this, is that if in heaven people from all nations are going to worship together, we as Jesus' people should reflect that on, on earth. And so we were planted with that, with that concept. And so this morning, we're going to talk about why uh, we believe that even a little bit more from, uh, from Scripture. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter, chapter 2, and we're going to talk about why diversity is value, why we will continue to fight for diversity, uh, even though often this, this fight has been a, uh, a, a struggle uh, to, to reflect, as we feel we should, uh, uh, Re- Revelation 5. Seven, we're going to talk about why we remain committed to it. So if you have a Bible and want to turn to it, we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2. Otherwise, I'm going to read now from Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. And it says this, So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ. Excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made no, of no effect the law uh, consisting of commands and expression regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those of you who were near. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into the holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. So here's the, here's the, the background, the, the kind of um, the, the reason. The guy who writes the, this, his name is Paul. Paul is, a, is an apostle or he is a, he's, a, he's a special teacher and leader in, in, in the church. He has authority and he's writing to, to one of the churches. The church is at, at, um, at Ephesus and he's writing to them. The reason he's writing to them is this, is that the church at Ephesus is made up predominantly of Gentiles. Now, 
A Gentile, for, for the purpose of our understanding, is anybody who had not grown up connected to the, uh, to the nation of Israel, uh, not connected to, to God's people uh, as established and seen in, in, the, in the stories, in the histories uh, of the Old Testament. They were people from different nationalities, different cultures, different people groups. They were not, uh, they were not in the view of, of the Israelites themselves and, and the Gentiles, God's chosen people. God had a people uh, that he had chosen, descended from Abraham to be his, his people. The Old Testament is written uh, to them and, and about them, and, and it was this national people. There were, they were called the Jews, or in our passage in a minute, the, the circumcised, and there was these other people, the, the Gentiles or the uncircumcised. The way God introduced himself into history is through the family uh, of Abraham. And he gives to the family of Abraham, uh, he gives to them promises. He gives to them, them structure in the form of the law. He gives to them all of these sorts of things through, through covenants. And, and they are God's people. But God's plan, even from the beginning at Abraham, when he told them, you look at the stars, your offspring will be as many as the stars. And he tells Abraham that he is going to be the father of many nations, not just one nation. But what had happened here in the New Testament times, in the times after Jesus has been, uh, been crucified, after Jesus has been resurrected, after Jesus has ascended, in the, in the early church, it's divided into two groups. You have the, 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 the Jewish people who, who have the history of, of, of the Old Testament, the history of, of the promises, the history of the law, the history of all these covenants. And you have the Gentiles who are kind of newcomers to all of it, but they also are beginning to follow beginning to follow Jesus, as was, was God's plan from the beginning. But what happened, though, what you need to understand is that because these two groups come from two very different places, they have a lot of hostility. They don't, they don't like one another. They don't trust one another. They have anger at, at one another. They have all of these sorts of things. And so it would be accurate to say that both, both groups harbored, harbored a prejudice against the other. The, the Jewish people would look at the Gentiles and they would think of them as, as unclean. They would think of them as dirty. They would think of them as not chosen. They would think of them uh, in all different kinds of ways, uh, in, in most of those as, as pejoratives, uh, as, as bad things. And for their part, the Gentiles would look at, at, at the, the Jewish people and they would th see a, a minority group, a, a small group, and they would have all kinds of prejudices towards them. And so what you have is two groups that are extremely prejudiced towards one another. They don't like one another. They don't care for one another. It is, it is extreme. Uh, it's been said, if you, if you read the history, that, the, that if you want to bring this into sort of an American example, the kind of hatred or, or, or animus between the two groups might be as great as perhaps a member of the Ku Klux Klan and a member of the Black Panther Party. Two groups that had prejudice against, against the other group, and they have extreme hatred for one another. So, so these two groups are now in, in this place where, where Paul has to write to them. And Paul's writing, in this case, to the, to the Gentile people. And he's writing to them to explain, uh, on the one level, why, why God is not prejudiced towards them. But he's also writing to them so that this dividing wall of anger, hostility, all of this kind of thing between the two groups might be destroyed. So we read here in verse 11, So then remember that one time you were called Gentiles in flesh, called the uncircumcised, by those who are called the circumcised. So in other words, remember at one time, you guys 
were, were, were outside of the, of the family of God. You were called names. By those who viewed themselves as insiders, you were called names that made you, you outsiders. And so we understand even in our own culture, in our, in our own time, that, that with various minority groups, various people groups, all these kind of things, and it's kind of a, a truism in, in our in culture in general, is that anytime there's a, a, a smaller group, someone will come along to pick on that group and say things about them. That's what's kind of happening here, even though the, the, um, the Jewish folk were a minority in, in, in the world at that time. They were the majority in the, in, in, in the Christian faith. They were the majority of the followers of, uh, uh, early followers of Jesus at that time, even though it's, it's going to transition. And so the majority is calling names to, to the minority, and, and it's causing all kinds, of, all kinds of problems. You were called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. So Paul's going to write and remind them, he says, remember, at one time you were called all of these names, you were called the uncircumcised, you were called all these kinds of things, but also remember who you are, you were really in a bad state. And so Paul's going to, to establish, uh, establish here, remember you were called names, but also remember at that time you were in a really bad place. You were without Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of promise. In other words, the promises that God gave to his people. You were not going to be recipients of, of those, those promises. Uh, you were uh, without hope and without God in the world. And then he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So he said, there was a time when you were far off, but now you have been brought near. And what happens then, what happens is, the, is this idea that, that the people who are name-calling, the people are going, hey, you guys, this, God says, remember, they, they were calling you that because of this, but that doesn't exist anymore. The reason for your exclusion, the reason for you being put out, I've removed that, that reason. Uh, so he's, he's encouraging them. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our, our peace, who has made both groups one, and torn down the dividing wall of hostility uh, in his flesh. Uh, so... You had two groups. They can't stand each other. One group has, has been the, the people of God from, from the beginning. The other group, God has in his, in his uh, as chapter 3 would, would say, the next chapter says, in, in revealing the great mystery of what he intended to do, he's begun to include those uh, in the church who are not just from a Jewish ethnic background, but he's included the, the Gentile folk too, and he's brought all of them near, and he's saying, God has brought you near, and when he did that, he brought peace. At one time you were without Christ, the corollary is now in, in Jesus, they, they have Christ. They were excluded from citizenship in Israel, but now in Jesus, they are citizens of Israel. They were foreigners to the covenants of promise, now they are recipients of the covenant of promise. Once they were without hope, now they have hope. Once they were without God, now they have God. Now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who has made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressing regulations. They might create himself one new man from two, resulting in peace. He did this so he might reconcile to God both to God and his body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. Here's, here's the idea. 
You have two groups, two groups that are hateful of one another, uh, and, and two groups that view themselves in some way as superior to one another. Paul starts where he is by reminding the Gentiles of where they were. And the reminder of where they were was apart from God. They didn't have anything to commend themselves to God. They didn't have anything to lift themselves up to God. They, in fact, were excluded from citizenship, foreigners to the covenants of promise. They were apart from, from God. And so he's going to remind them of that. A little later on, he's going to remind everybody that, in fact, where the Gentiles were, so were, without God, the Jewish people. In other words, everybody born into this planet started from the same place. And that place that we all started from was being strangers to God, uh, uh, hostile uh, to God, apart from God. And so, so when he says this, he says, For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. It means this, is that, that the reality is, is that we are all born into this world. And he's saying this, you're all born into this world. And when you're born into this world, you're not born good. You're not born, uh, born, uh, born with a natural relationship with, with, with God. You're not born naturally pleasing to God, but rather because of the effects of sin and because of the effects of what we call the fall, uh, we are born enemies of God. And that is true, by the way, not only of the Gentiles, but it's also true in this story of, of the Jewish folk. Everybody in this story is born an enemy of God. And so one of the ways we get about establishing, getting to the idea that, of what Jesus is going to do is realize that every human on earth started from the same place. So that, in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who has made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressing regulations that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. So the idea is you had two groups equally sinful. They both needed the, the, the same thing. They both needed to be healed or fixed from their sin. The only way to fix that was through Jesus himself coming. And Jesus, when he came and rescued both groups from their sin, it made them into one people, one, one people group. And so one of the things I want to say as, as we, uh, in a minute, we'll, we'll apply this, but one of the things we realize then is one of the reasons that, that Jewish folk and Gentile folk are on the same ground is there's a positive reason and a negative reason. The negative reason they're on the same ground is because they were all born evil. They were all born in, in the same exact place. It is easy to think of yourself as better than somebody else if you assume that you're born into a better station. You assume that you're born into a better place. You assume that you're born into a better relation, relationship, right? In our culture, sometimes people assume, well, I was born into a rich family, so I'm better than the person who was born into a poor family. I was born into, we don't have this a lot around here, but in, in certain communities and neighborhoods, they'd say, well, I was born into such and such family, and the last name of that family holds so much weight culturally that they might assume that they were better than, than us. So I was born rich, or I was born a, a debutante, or I was born this, or I was born that. All of these sorts of things, people assume that by the nature of their birth, that their birth puts them into a better place, right? And so we can see how that happens culturally. I was born rich. I was born uh, into this family. But then it can happen racially because there is in our culture usually some sort of uh, racial taxonomy. But that, that happens actually in cultures all over the world that certain people groups assume, well, I must be better because I was born into this people group. 
I'm better because I was born white. So I'm better than that group. I'm better because I was born Puerto Rican, so I'm better than that group. I'm better because I was born Vietnamese, so I'm better than that group. Well, I'm, I was born a Mexican, so I'm better than that group and that group. And so all of this stuff sort of stacks, and people are assuming based upon what they were born into that they're better than people from that, from that other group. We have had uh, in the world whole wars and, and horrific... Um, horrific uh, genocides based simply on one group assuming that being born into that group was better. If you've ever seen the movie Hotel Rwanda about the genocide in Rwanda, that was a fight between two, uh, two groups in Africa that were, that were from two different tribes. To Visually, we would all say, aren't they the same people group? But no, tribally, they did not view themselves as such. And it was one of the most violent and deadly massacres in all of history. They killed each other because one group said, I was born, born a Tutsi, so I am better. I was born this, so I am better. So the negative example, first off, from Scripture is this, is that when we talk about diversity, when we talk about people groups, there is no such thing as better. The negative example from Scripture is that the Jews and the Gentiles were both born into the same station. They were born enemies of God. They were born sinful. They were born in need of someone to rescue them, right? And so if we take that into our own culture, what we realize is this from the negative example, I as a Caucasian person growing up solidly middle class cannot be better than a person who is from Latin America who grew up poor or a person from the Philippines who grew up uh, rich, I'm not better than them based upon my skin color or my money, nor are they better than me. Because in fact, in the negative, we are all exactly equal. We are sinners. We are strangers. We are deserving of separation from God. We all start in the same place. It is, a, it is a what you might call a moot argument. It doesn't make any sense to have the argument. We are all broken. We are all separate. We are all not with God. And so that's the negative example. We all have the same starting place. It is probably why we try and claw our way higher. We try, well, I have this education, so I must be better. No, I have that money. And we can try and claw our way to the top. But the reality is, no matter what we do, no matter the color of our skin, no matter the, the money in our pocketbook, no matter the last name at the end of uh, uh, the, the, uh, our, our last name, all of that is of no effect when you look at this, this eternal reality. We were all born separate from God, his enemies, and that puts us exactly all on the same, on the same grounding. We have nothing to commend ourselves for then. So that's the negative example. But then the positive example becomes this, that God in his goodness and his love towards us looked at all people on the planet, not just one group of people on, on the planet, looked at all people groups on the planet. He looked at the black and the white. He looked at, at the Mexican and the Puerto Rican. He looked at the Filipino and the Vietnamese. He looked at the Guatemalan and the Ecuadorian. He looked at all the people groups and all the languages that are contained therein, all the derivations. He looked at all of that and he saw them, uh, he saw them not, not uh, 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 based on the color of their, of their skin, but he saw them based upon his own goodness and his own glory and decided that he was going to rescue 
all of those people groups. That's what Revelation 5, 7, where we started, says, for you have ransomed with your blood people from every tribe, language, nation, and race. And so in the negative, we have nothing, no reason to be prejudiced towards, no reason to discriminate towards any people group. We are all equally fallen before God. But the good news of that is this, is that we are also equally loved before God. God did not come and say, you know what? I'm going to die first for the white Americans. And when there's enough white Americans to, to satisfy my quota of how many of them I want to save, well, then I'm going to save a quota of, of, of black Americans, and then I'm going to save some people from the Philippines and some people from the African continent and some people from there. God did not do that. But rather, God, because of his own glory and his own goodness, died to ransom people from every tribe, every language, every nation, every race, all peoples. Therefore, there is nothing, the, the, the highest value, and I don't know if we always get this, but the highest value in the universe is not money. The highest value in the universe is not cars. The highest value in the universe is not power. The highest value in the universe is simply this, that the God and the maker of the universe would choose you, love you, care for you, and save you. That is the highest value in all of the universe. And if God has done that for every people group, there is no basis for racial discrimination or racial prejudice, especially within the church. So, there is a negative. We all start out equally sinful. The positive is, in Jesus Christ, we are all equally saved to his glory, to his honor, and to his praise. So, we'll continue for a minute then in the passage. Uh, verse 16, we'll pick it up. Uh, or actually, we'll start at 15. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and express and regulations, that he might create in himself one new man from two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both uh, to God in one body, through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. So he proclaimed peace to the Jewish folk and peace to the Gentiles. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you, speaking now to the Gentiles, are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So here's, here's the idea that we have always believed at Crosswinds that the church should be reflective of the passage, that the church should be reflective of Revelation 5.9, that if the kingdom reality is all people and all, people, all the people groups before the throne of God giving praise and worship to him, that that should be reflected in, the, in his congregations. That when it, when it says here, but you are no longer foreigners and sinners, but fellow citizens and saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, in him the whole building. When it, when it makes that description, it's describing what the church and what the body of Christ should look like. And so we said last week we want to function as, as a family. This week we want that family to be a large, diverse family. We want that family, when people look at it, to go, look, that family's made up of, uh, of white people, and that family's made up of, of Puerto Rican people, and that family's made up of, of Salvadorian people, and look, it has black people and African people, and it has, we want people to see that because that is a testimony to the work, uh, work of God, but we'll, we'll come back to that, but the family we're in is a diverse family. Some of us come from families that are, that are, um, that are completely Caucasian, so they're, 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 they're 
they're the same. But a lot of us actually have families that are, that our natural families are, are diverse. Some of us are adoptive families and they become diverse. And what I'm saying is, is that we want that diversity to be reflective. We want to function like a family, but the families, we want it to be large and diverse. Multicolored, multicultural, reflective of what God, what Jesus has done. If Jesus has died for all people, we want all people to know. All people to know. So built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, I'm in verse 20, with Christ himself as the cornerstone, in him, in him, the whole building being put together grows into the holy temple of the Lord. In him, you were also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Here's, here's the idea, is that we want, we want crosswinds because we believe strongly in the concept of of, of diversity, we believe strongly in, in the concept that Jesus died for every people, every nation, every tongue, because we believe that we want crosswinds to be reflective of that, so that we are a people being built together into, into one, one body. So, now then, let me, let me make some, some points about that just reflectively in our, our culture. One of the things we've seen in, uh, in our culture especially with very large churches, is that they have been able to obtain what you might call a modicum of diversity. So if you went to that church, they, you would look at them, and they would seem visually to be diverse. So you would look at them, and you go, well, there's white people, and there's people from other groups here. And, and that, uh, that is certainly a start. But here's what I want you to catch in this, this last verse. It says, in him, the whole building being put together, growing into a holy temple. What Crosswinds wants is not simply visual diversity. And when I say visual diversity, what I mean is this, is that sometimes when we talk about diversity in congregations, what we mean is a congregation that is essentially a white congregation wherein people of color attend and come to that congregation. And so people of color adapt their culture to whatever the dominant culture is in the, in the congregation. What you have is a white church that is visually diverse, but it is culturally culturally just one one culture and so i'm going to talk about that a minute just to simply say this one of the things we have one of the realities we need to face is we are in a very 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 difficult place uh uh, as, as it comes to dealing with race in our larger culture. So difficult that, that my, my response to the, this morning is we're just going to opt out of even talking about that. We're going to talk about, about the church and how we, we should behave and what we should like, like and how we should reflect. But I will say we're in a difficult place and there's a, there's a lot of argument in the larger culture, a lot of backlash about this issue. But the reality in, in this country is, is that anytime there is a majority group there is a majority culture. And majority cultures tend to function, uh, function on the basis of, of thinking of themselves as the normal culture. So you remember last week when I talked to you about a husband and a wife and a family getting married. And I said to you that often when, I, when, a, when I'm doing premarital counseling and, and a young woman and a young man come to me and they're like, we want to get married, I often say to them, talk to them about what their families are like and that sort of, and I remind them that all families on the planet are weird. And the reason I remind them that is because it is common for all of us to think of our family or, of origin as normal or as normative or as the way it should be. 
The same thing happens when we're talking about cultural, ethnic, and racial boundaries in America. There is a tendency for those of us from majority culture to think of our majority culture as the normative or the normal culture, as the culture, the right culture, the right way to do things. They've done studies in these large churches where, where they have, have attracted uh, uh, groups, uh, larger groups of people of color into these larger congregations. They did a study, and what they, they discovered is, is that the people of color ha- had, not, uh, had not significantly changed the culture of those churches, but rather they had been assimilated into them. So in other words, the people of color had come into a large Caucasian church, and they had assimilated or become like the, the white church, they had accepted and adopted the culture that was already there before them. What I want to say to you is this, is that our goal at Crosswinds is not to be an assimilating church, not to be a, a church that, that reflects the, the, uh, the cultures or the ethnic groups just visually, but we want to be truly multicultural. In other words, we want people of, of color to bring their culture with them in as much as it has been redeemed by Christ, in as much as uh, that, that Jesus has worked in it just as he has in ours. And one of the problems we do have is that if you're from the majority culture, you don't realize that you have a culture. You think that it's the way things are. You don't realize, but it's a culture. And so in as much as any culture it, where, there, where it is neutral or is not simple, we believe it should be brought into the body and used for the kingdom and used for the edification of people. We believe this to be the way God wanted it. Rather, we don't think that the plan of God was to rescue for himself people from every language, tribe, nation, all of those people, and make them into a homogeneous unit culturally. It was to make them into a family where they had different gifts and different things, and they could speak different ways. So your, if you have siblings, you know that you and your siblings are probably not exactly alike. You're different. You look different, you act different, you say different things, you have different personalities. You know that this hopefully makes for a better family situation. In the same way with the family of God, when, we, when people from different uh, ethnicities, when people uh, from different people groups uh, come together as one body, that difference should, should result in a, in a positive. It should result in something good for the church of Jesus Christ, not least of all, the mission of Jesus Christ. And I, I believe this is actually talked about in this passage here. Uh, in verse 21, it says, in him the whole building being put together grows into the holy temple of, of the Lord. Uh, I believe the idea there is when it uses the idea of the temple is that they're coming together and they're being built together, but they're not being made into one material, but there are a multiplicity of materials coming with their own cultures and their own things, and that is being built into, into not, not, um, not a melting pot where everybody melts into the same thing, but rather a mosaic where, where, the, where the wonderful things about all different cultures are coming together, and it's making the, the, the kingdom of God and God's kingdom uh, more... Uh, or it's giving greater glory to him. So the glory of God is being displayed in a greater way through these different people groups coming together. So here's, here's the, the point of all that. Here's simply what I'm saying. Is that the goal and the passion and the heart of Crosswinds is that we might be reflective of, of our community. Our community right now, at least to our schools, is majority Hispanic. And then it's equal parts or, or just slightly smaller population of Caucasian uh, with, a, with a little bit bigger population of African Americans. As to 
as to our school. In the neighborhood, what you see when you walk around is, is regular diversity. It would be a shame to me knowing that Revelation 5, 7 uh, and following says that God has ransomed with this blood people from every tribe, language, nation, and race. It would be a shame to me to see only one of those tribes, language, nations, race worshiping in a congregation that is right in the middle of the, of the neighborhood. In fact, if that were to continue to be our goal, we should evaluate why and what the purpose of that is. Why are we here? Because God has called us to the middle of a diverse community. It would be a crime or, or, or not a crime. In fact, I would say it's a, it would be a sin to be in the middle of this neighborhood and for our goal only to be to attract one people group or one, one group of peoples. And so the goal of Crosswinds always from the beginning is to be diverse. The goal of that diversity is that it would be truly multicultural, that your culture would have something to say to my culture and my culture would have something to say to yours. The example that I sometimes use is the example of a Dalmatian. A Dalmatian is a dog. You know it from the movie 101. Dalmatians, they're the puppies, but I was reading about them once, the, the, that Dalmatian puppies, when they become too purebred, become unhealthy. If, they, if, you, if you breed them just perfectly with, with perfectly other, uh, other uh, Dalmatians, they become unhealthy because what you do is you breed their tendency towards sickness in their background right into them. And so they tend to be sicker, they tend to die more quickly, they tend to be unhealthy. I think the same thing is true of congregations and true churches. If in the congregation all of us are monolithic, all of us are the same, all of us are, for lack of a better term, too purebred and come from the same exact culture and the same viewpoint, what happens is we become unhealthy because we become affirmers of things that are, that are cultural. We be, have the same blind spots, we don't see the same things, but rather when the church is healthy, when it has people from every diverse group, we can speak honestly into the situation. We are not like a Dalmatian, but rather we can help one another build into and be built into the temple that it is, that it is talking about here that God himself is, is building. So, then, uh, that said, I will tell you this, is that it is a, it is a un- dying passion for the pastoral staff here at, at Crosswinds to continue to look for leaders of color who can go into neighborhoods. It happens to be our calling to be in urban neighborhoods. Uh, people of color happen to be disproportionately, we can talk about why another time, but disproportionately represented in urban neighborhoods, disproportionately represented in, in places of need. And church planting in America, especially when I got started, was largely about find a growing middle class area, put up a church and, and it will grow. And so when we came along and said, no, we don't want to do that. We want to plant diverse congregations. I remember saying, I want to plant a diverse congregation that reflects revelation uh, to, to white pastors. And they said, why? And then I remember at that time saying it to, to an African-American pastor, and he said to me, can't be done. Can't be done. Here, here's the thing. If that's what the church looks like because of the cross of Jesus Christ in Revelation, then it certainly should be what the cross looks like in the church of Jesus Christ in Godwin Heights. Godwin Heights is a diverse community. It needs to be reflective. Secondly, can't be done is an interesting thing to say to a people who've been rescued by a Savior who died on cross and resurrected from the dead. That is an interesting thing to say. And so I would tell you this, we will, we will not stop fighting to be a diverse congregation. I'll also tell you this, that this is why sometimes because of our urban experience, sometimes because of our, of our orientation, 
towards, towards caring for people of color. Sometimes because we're in deep conversations with people of color, we hear and say things that might be different than some people from majority culture have heard or before or thought before. It is sometimes true that we think in our own culture. And so I'll give you an example of this. I was in a, um, I was in a Bible study earlier, uh, earlier this week, and one of the people was talking about uh, this idea of bringing America back to its greatness and back to its goodness. And we sometimes get this in our culture. We need to go back to where we were. We need to go back. Do you remember the great days of this, this nation, which is a very true thing to say if you come from a Eurocentric background? It's a very dangerous thing to say if you said it in our Bible study, which had someone from Freetown, Sierra Leone sitting in it and somebody else who was an African-American. Why? Here's why. Because the goodness of our country has always been good for the majority culture, right? For the majority culture, things have have been good in a lot of places. Not always, but they have been good. And we remember them in our collective thinking. When our nation was great, when our nation was great, to a person... Who is African-American, it means, however, that they're descended from slaves. Which means that when you say America was at one point great, they're going to remember 400 years of, 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 of chattel slavery, right? And they're going to remember that even when the 400 years of chattel slavery ends, we go into a period of 100 years of what's called Jim Brown Law, Jim Crow laws, sorry, Jim Crow laws. Jim Crow laws were the laws that were supposedly called separate but equal, but they were used all over this country to keep, keep people of color separate from, from white folk. I had the experience last year of going to, uh, to North Carolina. North Carolina, they have, uh, um, they have the original Woolworths. At Woolworths, back in, in, in the civil rights movement, that is where the young college students decided to sit down at the counter and wait until they were served because they were told that people of color could not be served at the counter. They had to go to the end or to wait outside for the food to be brought to them. But people of color couldn't come to the counter. I had a chance to sit and see these stools where the, where the young people of color sat until they were served. And what happened to them, though, as they sat, is that jeering crowds of Caucasian people came and they spit on them, and they spit at them, and, and, and they mocked them, and they made fun of them. The most sickening thing of this is that if you try look at some of the demographics of what happened there, many of the spitters, many of the haters, many of these people who, who would say these awful things to the people of color fighting for equality, many of those people were members in good standings of their Christian churches. Right, And so in our country, you have 400 years of, 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 of chattel slavery, followed by, by 100 years of Jim Crow laws, followed by, in, in the year 1954, the passage of Brown versus Board of Education. Brown versus Board of Education it, it, it said essentially this, that schools couldn't be segregated. At the time when that was said, the, the schools in the South are predominantly black schools, predominantly black schools were funded only at 60% of the funding of Caucasian students. And in fact, if we could, I'm just going to actually read to you something I wrote about Brown versus Board of Education, and we'll circle, circle back because I think this makes the point. This is something I wrote uh, about an experience I had, but allow me to read to you. Sometimes it creeps in in ways you would not expect. It's subtle, but it's there. The realization that even though there is only one geography, there are in fact many Americas. In the case I'm thinking of, I suppose it wasn't all that subtle, but it came as a sudden realization when it had thus dawned on me the weight of it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. We were all sitting crisscross applesauce at the feet of a docent at the local museum. The, co- the occasion was a great program called Immerse, where fifth grade students uh, come from their classes to the museum to do a week 
of, of hands-on training at the museum. At the moment in question, however, we were sitting in the shadow of an exhibit in the Grand Rapids Public Museum on immigration and the settling of our city, as well as the coming of the civil rights movement. Now, I'm sure that our very skilled presenter had done this talk many, many, many times. I suspect, however, she had never done it for a class like ours, mostly Hispanic and black. The canned presentation, which I'm sure worked wonderfully for the majority white classes she was probably used to seeing, was borderline human, borderline humorous when presented to a class made up of ethnic minorities and actual recent immigrants. The moment that sticks in my mind is when she looked at a black, young black boy and in reference to Brown versus Board of Education said something like, and this was so good because before the, before the schools were segregated and you would not have been able to go to school with white students. This she said triumphantly without a trace of irony that should have been present. There were two white kids in that class. Only one, my own, was there by choice, had any kind of choice of being elsewhere. Two white kids and 30 black and brown faces listening as the virtues of integrated education were extolled. In her America, I'm sure that it seemed true. In the other America, the waiting continues for Brown versus Board of Education to be implemented. Brown versus of edu Education struck down Plessy versus Ferguson. In its years of separate but equal, it was decided in 1954. Under Ferguson, the schools where I segregated were, were to provide equal education. In reality, they did anything but. At the time, Southern black schools received only 60% of the per-pupil funding as Southern white schools, up from 45% in 1940. Many Southern black schools, therefore, lacked such basic necessities as cafeterias, libraries, gymnasiums, running water, and electricity. The decision of the court was good news for our country, yet not the effect was not perfect. The court ruled against segregation but gave no, no guidance on how to implement its end. While the Justice Department filed a brief on behalf of ending segregation, Dwight Eisenhower was less supportive, telling Chief Justice Earl Warren before the case was decided that Southern whites were not bad people. The states, for their part, actively worked to keep the schools segregated, with Alabama Governor George Wallace famously crying out in 1963, or nine years after Brown versus Board of Education, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Ten years after Brown versus of Education was decided in 1964, only about 1% of black children in the former confederacy, confederacy attended schools with whites. And those who did often endured constant harassment. Also telling us the fact that from 1961 to 1971, the enrollment in non-Catholic public schools uh, doubled. Perhaps not solely because of a fear integration, but it was a large factor. The cropping up of new Christian schools during this era earned them the moniker segregation academies. For those of you who, who grew up in the time I did, and there were lots of Christian schools called this and this academy, this and that academy, that's, that's those schools. The reality of this well into the 1970s is that well into the 1970s, the fight to integrate America's schools was still waging. The background's necessary, so I can say this. Brown versus Board of Education was struck down in 1954, but was not implemented for decades, and we've been very efficiently doing all we can to nullify it in America ever since. As we sit today in the year 2016, when I wrote this, uh, schools are more segregated than they were, have ever been uh, since 1980. Only 26 years uh, uh, since 1980. Uh, when 1980, which was 26 years after Brown, and was the strongest attempt to fully implement the order. Uh, it's time to ask why. Why are schools segregated? Why are many 94% white? Why are others 94% uh, black? And then I'll just skip ahead. So the answer, whether we like it or not, has to do with majority culture, racism, and discrimination. Uh, 
We're afraid a lot of times to hear the term racism, but racism is the only logical answer to why we have the, these issues. One might wisely say, it's not about race, it's not about income, it's about income. It's a brilliant answer, here's the problem. The socioeconomic status of the majority patron and minority school is considered, it, that does make sense. But then one must consider why is it that people of color are so disproportionately represented in the impoverished class? It is about income, right? The poor, uh, the, the poor white people are receiving the same sort of educational detriments as poor black children. But the question is, why is a majority class, or are all majority classes, in fact, uh, outside of a few, disproportionately represented in the impoverished class? Poverty is a correlating factor, but we must stop and ask, what is causing the poverty? We must agree that either there's a systematic factors contributing to disadvantage for people of colors, which is an acknowledgement of systematic racism, or say that people of color themselves are more prone to poverty. They're not as smart, hardworking, family-oriented, which would be an example of personal racism. But we only have really two choices when you look at what's going on in our country. And I'll sort of stop there, but what, I, what I'm trying to make the point is this, is that in our country, if you grew up Caucasian, and I did, you grew up with a certain amount of privilege. People hate when I say that. Not, not, not people. The majority of culture hates when I say that we grew up with privilege. But we did. And I don't, people go, well, that's just white guilt. I don't feel any guilt. I've not made a statement about guilt. I've made a statement about reality. And here's where the reality comes in. Let me help you see this. I view, when I talk about privilege, I view it simply as a mathematical problem, right? Uh, here's, here's the math problem. If the majority culture has more people in it, and it does, and there are more people for a lot of other reasons in that majority culture, because there's more of them who tend to have, have jobs where they get to hire people, and they do, that's true, there's more Caucasian managers in businesses. And it's also true that people tend to hire people that they know and they already have established relationships with, which is also true. Then it also follows that what is most likely going to happen just by, 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 by that example, the sheer math of it is, is that the majority culture is going to have better jobs, hold more hiring positions, and they're going to be most likely to hire people who look like them, the people they know. So privilege is not, when I say we, we have a certain amount of privilege, I do not say that to mean that you should feel white guilt. I mean that simply to point out a mathematical reality. So let me circle back to what I was saying. So people, go, people say, we need to make uh, America better like it was. We need to go back to a person who is African-American and descended from slavery. What does that mean? When was America great, if I might ask? To a person from Sierra Leone, from, free, from Sierra Leone, where the majority of our slaves were kidnapped from to be brought here and to sold as property, what does it mean? See, we need to acknowledge that we have different answers to that question and understand that the way we view things is not the only way that it is. To acknowledge that to be Caucasian is to have privilege. And to have that privilege is not something to be guilt, feel guilty about, but it is something to be stewarded. See, the privilege that I receive as a Caucasian in this culture was something given to me by God so that I could help people that, that I come into contact with. Because, you know, one of the great ways to overcome this structural inequity is this is that if people who, who are in hiring positions, if they're Caucasian, would develop friendships with people of color, they would know more people of color whom to hire, and it would start to break down some of this systematic stuff. But your, your privilege was given to you to steward. And so, so I'll just make the point like this. We have in our country... We have in our country uh, racial animus. We have in our country racial problems. We have in our country people who want to make America um, 
great again, and I'm not trying to pick on that politically, it's just the term works for me. We have people who want to make America great again, and then we have all kinds of other people who are descended from 400 years of, of um, chattel slavery, 100 years of Jim Brown and in schools that have never really been desegregated. And in fact, federal laws that now keep us in our super segregated schools from even considering race as a factor when we draw the lines for a school. So we have federal laws that keep us from integrating schools. We know that in, in urban schools, because of the way politics work, because of the way gerrymandering works, because of all of these sorts of things, we know that our schools in urban neighbors continue to be dreadfully underfunded. We know all of these things. And so we know, for instance, that when Thomas Jefferson, uh, when Thomas Jefferson wrote, "We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal," he at the same time owned a thousand men. We know that he held slaves when he when he said it. And so, I'm not trying to break your faith in the country. I'm trying to wake your eyes up to this this reality that that this country has not always been great for people of color. You might be from a people group where you're like, it's not always been great for me either. That's awesome, cool. It's, it's not the point though, right? Yeah, the point is simply this, is that we need to, need, to, need, to, need to tune into this fact that diversity in a congregation like this is going to be hard work. And sometimes we're going to say things and we're not going to understand things. To talk about white privilege amongst Caucasians is not, is not always fun because uh, they get very angry sometimes, Right? People get, and so we've been in situations uh, to talk about, uh, about white privilege, to talk about immigration, to talk about Colin Kaepernick, to talk about these sorts of things, and kind of to have honest conversations about these things has at times been very uncomfortable, and yet we, as leaders in Crosswinds, remain tuned in, and we do talk about them. I do not want to inundate you. I do not want to overwhelm you. I don't want to do any of that, but it is one of our core commitments. So we continue to talk about those things because we view these people as brothers and people and sisters and, and people we love. They view, we don't view them as them. We view them as us. These are our our people. And so that's why we continue to talk about it. It's why we continue to fight for diversity. I'll make this, this last sort of point here at this. Sometimes people will say, why are you talking about race? Why don't you just talk about the gospel? Here's, here's why. Because Revelation chapter 5 seems to suggest that the gospel is for all people. Right? And the reality is, is, to, is, is racial equality the gospel? No, but it's an effect of the gospel. It certainly is. And frankly, when you tell me to just talk about the gospel, when I ignore the suffering of the man next to me, when I ignore the suffering of my brother of color, when I ignore the suffering of my undocumented friends, when I ignore the suffering of children who are growing up disconnected because a system is choosing to not educate them the way that they should, when I ignore those things, you may want me to just talk about the gospel. But I ask you this, with the people who are struggling that, who in the world is going to listen to that gospel? If the gospel is not good news and it does not have impact and the power of the cross of Jesus Christ is not true and not powerful enough to destroy dividing walls of hostility like it claims, if it's not to be talking about, if it's verboten, if Paul made a mistake when he talked about the Jews and Gentiles being made into one people, if that's the gospel, I don't know what gospel message that has for the people in my community. But I do know this, that when I live out the gospel, when I say to my friends of color, slavery happened and was awful, and I am sorry that you were not treated as equal for 400 years. It doesn't make up for 400 years, but it takes a step. 
and when I lean into it, and when I watch other Caucasian folk attack my people of color, and I jump in to a fight I didn't want to get into, and I take the body, body blows for that, I'll continue to do that, and I'll tell you why. Because the gospel needs to be for people of color. And frankly, the majority church has been doing a great job of obscuring it for a lot of years. Because they've been telling us, yes, preach the gospel, but their gospel has no power. But their gospel has no effect. But their gospel is just a clever way to silence to silence people of other cultures. Crosswinds is committed to this, people from every tribe, language, nation, race, worshiping together, not for the visual, but for the impact, so that the world might see, hey, there's people there who are black, and there's people there who are Sierra Leone, and there's people there from, from Mexico, and there's people there from Philippines, and they worship together, and they respect each other, and they listen to each other, and they pray for each other, and they cry to, uh, together, and they demand the justice that Scripture promises together. That's gospel because people want to hear the good news about a king who brings freedom. They don't want to bring, hear the good news about a king who will save them but keep them in chains so that the majority culture can continue to build on its status quo. We just aren't that church, man. If that's what you look, we will not be that, that church. That is, in my opinion, an affront to the gospel. We have a dream. And the dream is simply this, that when we come here, that, the, that what I see is people from every language, every tribe, every nation, singing together and worshiping God together. And I have a dream that when I, when I go to my huddle and I say, I need to grow in this area that a person of color can draw from their own rich culture and speak into that. When I go to my huddle and I don't want to confess my sin, that a person of color, a person from another culture can call me out. We do not want to be unhealthy Dalmatians. But rather, we want to be the healthy body of Christ reflected in, in, in the future kingdom and made possible by what, what the Scripture talks about in Ephesians 2, that we would be a people built up into the temple of the living God. And we will continue to, to fight for that. We will continue to fight with all our, all our being. Thomas Jefferson said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. But he didn't believe it. Paul said the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. And he said that Jesus came to establish it. To make it true. We are simultaneously one people. But we're one people who are a diverse representation of what the body of Jesus Christ is in the world. Crossroads will fight until our last day to live out that truth. Pray with me.